Hello and welcome to season four of the Bible and Me podcast. This is episode four of 12 in this series. So join us on this journey as we discover some incredible testimonies of people whose lives have been well and truly changed for the calling of God. In this episode, Nigel Watts sits down with Caroline Lamb, the founder of Cress, a Christian relief and education for South Sudan charity, to discuss how she felt a weight like no other from her first trip to South Sudan that led to some truly unbelievable provisions and testimonies that confirmed God's hand was at work. The views expressed by the individual in this podcast may not reflect that of Precept Ministries UK. We hope this podcast inspires you in your daily walk and would love it if you could leave a review or rating so that we can encourage more people to the good news of the gospel. Now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Caroline Lamb to the program today. Uh, Caroline was educated in Salisbury in Wiltshire and read geography at Oxford University in the mid-1970s. Caroline has been a teacher, a school governor, a lay Christian leader, and was led by the Lord to set up her own charity called CRESS, or Christian Relief and Education in Southern Sudan in 2008. She lives on a farm. She keeps pigs, sheep, and chickens. Uh, More recently, she has started to grow flowers, uh, which she allows others to come and pick. Uh, Life has not always been easy for Caroline. However, she has a real love for the Lord. And what is close to his heart is close to her heart. Caroline, welcome to the programme. Thank you, Nigel. Um, First question I want to ask you, have you always had that love for the Lord. I mean, how did you become a follower of Jesus? Um, My first memory was when I was seven years old. We had a mission. A man came and put a tent up on the school playing field, and it was just across the way, and I took myself there. None of of my siblings went. I have five siblings, and nor did my parents, but I took myself over there, and I can even remember his name. He was called Mr. Bush, (laughs) and he spoke about Jesus and the gospel. And then at school, Godolphin, uh, the headmistress, Miss Fraser, had a very strong faith, and that had a big influence on me, and Mm. she led a lot of things I went to. And then I was fortunate enough to um, go to university and join the Christian Union, and God's just always been there for me. Wow, but Mm. started at seven years old. So amazing that you went to that meeting, toddled off on your own, none of your brothers or sisters. I can remember it. That is, that is amazing. God had obviously put a... And I used a, to take myself to church, but they, they never went at all. My mother went to church a bit, but I would take myself. And then I was invited to West Runton camps. I don't know whether they still happen, but they're part of Scripture Union. And again, I used to just go off on those. Really? And on your own? Quite happy to go off on your own? Go on my own. Go on yeah. your own? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Now, you read geography at Oxford University. Mm-hmm. Um, where did the idea come from to specialise in international development while you were studying geography? Because you sort of uh, yes, I did. It, 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 I did two whole terms on international development. I think again, it was just God gave me that interest. You know, it says in Ephesians two ten, we're God's workmanship created in His likeness for good works which He prepared beforehand. Mm. And now I'm doing this work, I can see how He prepared me for it. Oh, really, and that was very much part of it. Yeah. And what was it like being at Oxford University, particularly amongst Christians and the Christian um, sort of folks there? Um, the sermons at church were absolutely great. I went to St. Aldate's, absolutely loved them. 
But if I'm honest, I wish there'd been more house groups in the church. It was quite difficult to sort of practice your faith and meet your friends there. So I sort of separated the two slightly. Mm. But it was still a really formative time. Mm. I learned a huge amount of scriptures off by heart, mm. which are with me now, and I was really grateful for that. Mm. So it, it was It is good. an important time going to university because mm. it can be a sort of dividing time, can't it? When you're leaving yeah. home yeah. and you're away from the sort of, mm. if you like, mm. parental influence, and yeah. you know, people can go sort of one or two ways, can't yes. they, really? Yes. Um, I guess I had to find my own way as a Christian there, and even if my, some of my friends weren't, just the sermons and the Bible and learning Bible verses it was just tremendous. And I've still got that Bible that I learnt them all from. Yeah, and St Aldate's. Molly and mm. I were married at St Aldate's. Yeah, that's lovely. In 1988, <laughs> and uh, it was just after uh, Michael Green had stepped down, actually. Mm. There's, a, there's a new guy yes. there who was just fantastic. So, mm. yeah. Now, you live in uh, what is known as the Chalk Valley, for Correct. those who don't live around here, mm -hmm. uh, and live out your faith in many different ways in yes. the local community. Yes. Um, tell us about some of the initiatives you've instigated mm -hmm. in the Valley and just your involvement in being uh, a Christian in, in, in the place where you live. Thank you, Nigel. Well, I was again very blessed after going to Oxford University to attend Holy Trinity Brompton in London, where I did a course called Lighthouse, which was sort of pre-Alpha and it was a two-year course and um, you learned the basics of Christian faith, you had to write essays, etc. So when we arrived in the Chalk Valley, I thought, if I've got this knowledge and there's nothing much happening, the best thing I can do is get on and use it. <laughs> so um, with that, um, started a women's group, which originally had three members. And from that group, it's grown. We, we've run it in the hall all these years. And out of that group, lots of different initiatives have happened. So one of those would be Lee Abbey. We take the church family, and I know you came with us mm -hmm. with Molly one year. Mm -hmm. We take the church family there, or the evangelical members of the church, uh, every two years. And we've gone from 24 members to taking the whole of Lee Abbey, which means about 90 adults and 25 children. And we can do that from the Chalk Valley, which is, which is amazing. We've run suppers there, we, we, masses of suppers, post-alpha, lots of suppers. We've run men's breakfasts. Um, now the group does open the book in schools um, and also out of it, it grew, grew my charity. So from this sort of base, mm. lots of different things have happened. We have a service monthly in the school yes. and there's lots of, there is lots of Christian life in the Chalk Valley one way and another, yeah. which is good. Is that difficult to keep going? I mean, how do you, how do you find it with a, with a span of folks up and down the valley? I mean... Um, it's challenging in a yeah. rural area, yeah. really challenging. Yes. But again, I'm really passionate about mm. people actually mm. worshipping where they live. Mm. And if you can't manage to, can you manage something once a month, I'd say to people, or, or could you manage to belong to a mother-toddler group? Is there something you can do in your community, mm. even if you go to a more lively church in, um, yeah. in the city? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I can get quite heated about it because <laughs> I'm so passionate that people do go locally. And then you just say to yourself, what could I do that's just something that will bring God's life and light into that, into that area where I live, that yeah. village? Because yeah. if every light goes out of the village, then it leaves a vacuum where uh, perhaps the enemy or other forces can come in. Mm -hmm. So if the Christians can just stay there and mm -hmm. be that light, mm -hmm. it, it, 
in whatever way they feel led, mm. it makes a huge difference. Mm. And what are some of the things you've seen through maybe some of the outreaches or um, any, any, have you you've seen people coming to faith or inquire yes, about the Christian faith? Yes, we've seen people coming to faith. We've seen also some really tremendous services when we get the Christians there and we perhaps have a, possibly some people would think traditional service, but the Christians are in there and just, just a sense of God's presence and of community is really uh, powerful. And also, when you live in a rural area, everybody's watching you unconsciously. So how you walk out your life is being noted, even if you're not leading them to Christ. Hmm. Exactly, sort of directly. But people are watching. You are a witness how you yeah. go about their life. Yeah. Your life, they, they know. Yeah. And also, the church is in the community and very well connected. So mm. it's been, it's been mm. great. Mm. Well, good on you. I know you. Mm. I know you. You. You really galvanise a lot of people in the <laughs> local area. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is which is fantastic. Thank now, you, in two thousand nine, you visited um, southern Sudan. Mm -hmm. um, why did you go? And what did this lead to? And and I've just seen here on my notes, which I didn't ask you. Uh, I guess it's aligned to the question, really. But you um, you left Oxford and you became involved in education for a number of years as a teacher and a school mm -hmm. governor. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you, what captivates you about education? Because I know there's a, a big element of what you're doing with Crest is to do with with is to do with that. So, mm -hmm. what captivates you about education? First question, mm -hmm. and then lead on to talk about your visit to Southern Sudan and where that has led to. Um, I think education is the, as well as the Christian faith, but the I ideal is the two combined, is if you like, it's like a door to life. So with your education, you then got the door opens and opportunities and life is before you. And if you've got God with you, then you can be guided what opportunities you take. Hmm. Um, so perhaps that's yeah. a simple sentence of yeah. why education um, is, is so, so important, but as a teacher, and then I was a school governor of the village school for 32 years, which I've absolutely loved every minute. Their communities, um, their places of learning, their, their interest, um, they're, they're wonderful places for the Christian, Christian message to be shared and lived out. So really passionate about, again, local, local community schools. Are, mm. uh, and, and I think in Britain too, there are lots and lots of them now, and we, we don't sing our positive side enough, and they're doing great work, church. Mm. Church primary schools. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So, 2009, mm -hmm. going to southern Sudan. Yes. Why did you go to southern Sudan in 2009? Mm -hmm. And what did that lead to? Thank you. Um, sometimes God calls us in perhaps slightly, it seems at first, human ways. So this is how it started. Uh, there was a lady in our fellowship group. I, I led this group. Um, and she went to India a lot, Lady Head, you know, Alicia Head. And I thought... And she used to come back really passionate about it. So that struck me as interesting. I also read The Purpose Driven Life, which in that chapter, Rick Warren says that if you really want to experience God, you need to go on a mission. So I thought, well, I do want to experience God. And then this is the slightly ungodly bit. I thought, if I'm going to be leading this group, I need to have done what this woman's done because I can't be a leader if I haven't done this. <laughs> so what am I going to do about it? <laughs> so um, I just asked God where I should go and then... Salisbury Diocese has a very active link with the South Sudan. So that 
it was obvious that's where I must go. Then I thought, who am I going to go with? Who do I know? Well, I knew Jan Ransom, who leads an organization called Flame. And yeah. I'm sure you know we her. Know Jan. You know we Jan, know, because know Jan. exactly, <laughs> through the army. Yeah. And she leads an organization called Flame. Yeah. And so I got in touch with Jan and said, I think the Lord's calling me. I'd, I'd love to come to South Sudan sometime. Hmm. But also, being called, you know, you need to um, know that God's calling you. Mm. And I was quite nervous about it. And um, one of the signs is in Nikki Gumbel's book, I think it's the five C's, and, and one is commanding scriptures. And one of those was in the um, gospel when Jesus tells them to fish on the other side of the boat. And they said to Jesus, because you say so. Mm. And those words, because you say so, really struck me. And, and, and God was saying to me, go and go and be obedient. Mm. So there was that. But the other really deciding factor too is uh, we had a service in our school and two women came and spoke about South Sudan. And at the end of the service, I was just sort of clearing up chairs or something. And a lady in our community called Sue Gooden uh, came up to me and she wouldn't have known she was giving a word from the Lord mm -hmm. at all. She just said, I can see you're one of those, one of sort of person who could go to South Sudan. Mm. And I was absolutely bowled over by that. So I thought, right, this is a sign I must go. Mm -hmm. And so with that, um, I ended up going to a particular place in South Sudan called Kajikaji, where Jan took me. Right. Um, what happened when you got there? Right. Well, so before <laughs> I went, I was very nervous, but I prayed a very dangerous prayer. I prayed, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And that was a prayer, I believe, the man who started World Vision prayed before he went. But I very consciously prayed that. So I went out there and was with Jan, and they were doing... Uh, their teaching on healing of the land and forgiveness and deliverance. And I was part of the prayer team and I, I loved that, but I knew that wasn't exactly my calling. But when I looked out oh, beyond the compound we stayed in, I could see that charity targeted to small places makes a difference. The only things I could see in South Sudan that were functioning had been started by charity and the church. Obviously, that was started by the missionaries 120 years ago, or less, even 110. But charity did make a difference. So I thought, well, perhaps I could do something to um, help here. Um, so I didn't want to be involved in the decision. So I asked Jan to ask the bishop, who is Bishop Anthony Pogo. He now works here in London as the Anglican advisor for the Archbishop of Canterbury. But he was the bishop. I was with in South Sudan because Jan had gone to his diocese. And um, Jan asked Bishop Anthony, and Bishop Anthony said, I would like Caroline, if she can, to raise funds to support a Reverend Joseph Abba, who was a local clergyman who he wanted to employ. He had just, Joseph had just come back from college um, studying social studies or something. He was an ordained clergyman, but Bishop Anthony wanted to employ him. So I thought, well, that sounds all right. Let's go home and try and do that. And so that's, that's how the idea. But what then happened was, mm. this is a story of, um, if you like, God's sign on it, was the night before I left, I was sharing a room with Val Batchelor, went to bed, and I started weeping in quite a sort of quiet but sort of unusual way, really. And I fell asleep, and I was weeping. Mm. And when I woke up, I was weeping. I was still weeping. 
So I thought, oh, that's a bit odd. I don't normally do this. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Val said to me, Caroline, well, I think perhaps God's calling you. Perhaps you better do something like collect maybe a few hymn books. You could start with that, a few Bibles. I knew it was probably going to be bigger than that at the time. But anyway, so I didn't. Uh, that's fine. I left. I left there. We flew out on a little math plane, went to stay in it. Math, mission mi aviation. Yeah, sorry, Missio, who fly us in and out yeah, and yeah, yeah. who are a great organisation and the only way you can get in and around South Sudan. It's too dangerous otherwise. Flew out with math, landed, stayed the night, and the next morning I had a very clear picture of a stage with a curtain drawn back. And it was as if God was saying clearly to me, um, this is the next stage of your life. I'm just going to show you the next stage of your life. And very clear picture. Anyway, I went home and I was completely churned up. I couldn't do anything. My husband said, Caroline's here, but she's not here. Her heart is still in South Sudan. But also I had another strange experience. It was like I was pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Um, I've never had it before or since. And it was very obvious. I mean, perhaps, I don't know, it was just sort of like a overshadowing. It's just like he was on me mm. and I couldn't really concentrate. I remember ironing was difficult. Everything was difficult. I was just thinking about South Sudan, thinking about everything, very conscious of God's presence. And it stayed a few weeks until I said, God, I can't do anything. It has to go. And it, it went after that. And I got back to life as normal. Really? <laughs> yeah. But it was a very strong physical science. Mm. So how would you describe the steps thereafter regarding um, your link with Southern Sudan and uh, and tell us about the work of, of the organization so you know what did God so what did God do how did God continue to lead you because clearly he was calling you mm. and um, what were the key steps along the route to to where you are now with the organization 10 years down the line okay thank you um, we have a project in the Chalk Valley called the Lent Project, and you go to a meeting before Lent and you put your bid in, what do you think you might do? So I went along in about January or whenever it was and said, could we do Cress? No, it wasn't Cress then. Could we do, uh, could we fundraise for Joseph Abba? And this is my idea. We could salary this man for South Sudan. Anyway, we just won the bid there. It was a bit nerve-wracking. had to have somebody come and pray and everything and we, we won the bid which was wonderful so we set off on the Lent project where you go around and people put on fundraising events it might be a coffee morning it might be your village often does a, a lunch and then you speak at the lunch and people give or, or as they feel led and um, so a series of events in the Chalk Valley I had no figure in my head what to raise the most that had ever been raised before that was about seven eight thousand pounds and to our amazement we raised twenty five and a half thousand pounds and I don't know how many are on the electoral roll in the Chalk Valley, but it's not huge. Maybe 600 people, I don't know, five, 600. But we raised that amount of money. And somebody asked me the other day how the money came in. I don't know, but it came in. So with that, we salaried Joseph for three years. We immediately said, right, we could salary this man for three years. We'd get him a motorcycle, a mobile phone, and a laptop, and then he can work with the bishop. And he was going to, Joseph was going to work as the mission outreach coordinator for Bishop Anthony Pogo. Hmm. Um, so Joseph is evangelist and he loves that. So he, he did that. But the other thing that happened was that I realized that he, would, he was on 50 pounds a week. 
he has a lot of children, nine of his own children, and several foster children live with him as well. So I didn't think he was going to stay long in that job on £50 a week. Could we salary his children? So asked around on the Tuesday Fellowship, and immediately his family was salaried, just uh, not salaried, um, sponsored for education, a set amount for each child, just like that, we found sponsors. Then the church said, Caroline, we're a bit tired of handling your money. We've got to do all the gift aid and we don't really want to. So we, I said, well, we better form a charity then. Well, I didn't even say that. I'd found a man who lives in our village who said he'd handle our accounts. So he started handling the accounts. And we looked into being, because we didn't have any idea, we looked into going under with, in with another charity, but that didn't really work out. So we said, let's go for charity status. And in fact, we got charity status in two weeks. Someone thought of the name Cress. Cress is the other half of the word watercress. We grow watercress in our village, which is quite an unusual crop. And so that worked out really well, being called Cress. So in 2011, we received official charity status and we um, became a charity. Um, but the other interesting bit is, I went out to South Sudan a year later in September and I met Joseph and I remember I got off the plane and I saw him and he said, he had no idea it was going to turn out like this. I said I hadn't either. Because uh, by then, all his children were, you know, salaried, sponsored to go into school. That's a huge weight off their minds. Huge. Because they were only, most of them weren't even hardly at school. Um, and only at schools in U South Sudan, which are very poor schools. So they were going to go to school in Uganda. That was a huge weight. But he then told me he'd had a dream uh, years before that um, an English woman would come and support him and he didn't know when he met me that I was the one and I sincerely believe God took me 4,500 miles to meet that particular man and to support him and he's now a bishop he's in charge of refugee camps he has a huge influence um, and wouldn't be able to do this without the support that Cress has been able to give him right. And give me an idea of the scope of the work now. So we're now a number of years down the line mm -hmm. since you formed as a charity. Mm -hmm. so, so We're nine, ten years down the line. Okay. So we now educate. Uh, immediately, God just gave me a picture of how to, um, a vision for this charity. And I literally scratched it on the back of a paper. And it was going to start with the leaders. So we started supporting the leaders that work with Bishop Anthony and educating their children. And we've ended up with 78 children in education. We have... Um, um, uh, seven of those are diploma students, four of those are at university. And I've just literally walked here today, picked up a message to say a girl that we've educated all the way through has just been, ex she's now got a job in Juba. She'd got a degree from UCU, um, Uganda Christian University. She'd just been accepted for a master's in Iceland. <laughs> this is somebody from South Sudan. This is where 0.4% of girls um, finish secondary school. And she's just been accepted as a, to a master's. How does that make you feel? Amazing. <laughs> I think it's so difficult to get the story out there. I mean, it's such an amazing story. So that's, that's the children. That's 78 children educated. Mm. Um, they're all now refugees, so we've had to completely restart the charity a year ago in Uganda. New offices, so or we rent offices. Just to explain for listeners why that is. Okay. South Sudan um, became a separate country in 2011 from North... From northern Sudan, which is now just known as Sudan, they South Sudan. Unfortunately, two years later, a civil war started and the leaders started fighting each other, basically. And the people 
the, that we work with, who are right down in the south of South Sudan, have had to leave their homes, all of them, because it's been invaded by other South Sudanese who've come from further north and have just plundered their homes. So they all left in, finally left in January 17. They are part of the 1.4 million South Sudanese refugees who are in northern Uganda now, who are, the majority of those are in camps. Some are not, some are living free in the bush. There are four bishops who are in exile. One of, two of those bishops we support, mm. Crest supports. Mm. And they have divided up the camps and the areas um, into pastoral areas, the church has mm -hmm. in South, mm -hmm. the South Sudanese church. It's been uh, staggering how they have just come up and they've reorganized themselves in another country. Really? Mm. And they've been welcomed by Uganda? Yes, they are um, officially allowed there as uh, the churches, as guests or partners of the Ugandan church. Mm. And I've asked them why the Ugandans accept them. They said the Ugandans are very similar to us, with similar sort of tribes, who speak similar languages. Mm. And they had to run in the past from the Lord's Resistance Army into our country. And they don't know when it'll happen to them again. So they are welcoming us Isn't and we're partnering with them. Isn't that mm. interesting? Mm. And would you say, what percentage of those 1.4 million refugees uh, are, are Christians, would you say? It's hard to give a figure on that, maybe 20%. Okay. But the church is the only organisation in South Sudan that, in my view, is effective and has lines of communication and has access to all the people. I mean, it might be 50%, I really don't know, but mm. they are the only respectable organization for mm. the people mm. and they're there for the people mm. so what has happened is in the camps the church has immediately built churches in the camp and i know in vepi camp in vepi camp is about the population of southampton they have built 24 churches in that camp spread around the camp the camp size is probably takes about 40 minutes to drive across because they will have a little bit of land with their plot um, and there are 24 churches there, and one cathedral, one leader, and then pastors and mothers' union all around there. And they then work pastorally with the pe local people around them. Really? So they're, they're, the, basic, they're the infrastructure they are the for infrastructure. the people? They are the infrastructure, both in exile and in the country. And they're also being described as the glue that holds the country together. Really? That's absolutely true. Really? Mm. And, and, and is there any sense of when they can even start to think about returning to their homeland? Well, they are saying that the, 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 the current peace deal is holding slightly, um, but I think the people we work with won't go back until they really know it's peaceful. It's a big country, South Sudan, and to actually maintain geographical control over it is, is not easy. Mm -hmm. Give us, uh, I mean, you have given us an insight, but give us a little bit more of an insight into the day-to-day -day running of this Charity. Actually, I haven't told you everything I do. <laughs> we do. I uh, only told you 78 children. We do some other things. Okay, carry on, carry right. on. Yeah, we, we've, I got us distracted. Sorry. Um, so you educate we, these children. Our yeah. vision is to um, educate and empower the South Sudanese to become self-sufficient. Because South Sudan has no 
uh, indices of development is the, is the word, and, and virtually nothing in every way. We've, we've had to spread out and do quite a few different things, and we work with one main, two main bodies of people, two dioceses. There are delivery partners, Bishop Joseph and Bishop Emmanuel. And so we, the education I've mentioned about the, the ch leaders, children, then we wanted to help people with agriculture. So we have 15 groups spread over eight camps uh, with 224 women being instructed on agriculture. This has happened during this year. I've been in seeing a lot of those groups and they're all functioning. And so we think 2,500 people have been helped with some kind of food security. Mm. So, so that's that. We also, the, the health situation is absolutely dire. I mean, it's been described as a body without blood, the health system in South Sudan. Um, so we, had, we started a clinic in South Sudan. They had to go on the run and leave that, but they managed to get everything out of it, all, all the beds, everything. And they've set up in a very remote place right on the border in Uganda, but right on the border with South Sudan. And that clinic um, employs people that Crest supports. And this year they tell me they've seen 6,720 patients so far. These are refugees who have no other health care. Um, and also from that clinic, we've been running reusable menstrual pads training for vulnerable women and young girls to um, help them with um, mm -hmm. issues around menstruation. Mm -hmm. And that's been hugely successful. And literally last week, 200 women were given that training and given the necessary pads mm. um, to in the camp of Invepi. Yeah. So yeah, it's just really. been done. So that's some health, and that's some health, some agriculture, some um, education, and, and we are also going to start some microfinance. And also, I know that you go, Fee Sheldon goes out with you, doesn't yes, she? she does. Friend, and yes, she does. Friend. She's been doing emotional yes. um, training and emotional well-being for anybody we met and for the leaders, some one-to-one -one work and also some training for the pastors again in the camps to work with people on emotional well-being and how to look after yourself emotionally and mentally well mm. in the camp. And they found that incredibly helpful. And it's not possible to do any development work if the people are suffering, yeah. as we're, we're learning in this country, yeah. emotionally and mentally. Yeah. So yeah. this has been a huge asset this year. Yeah. Mm. So it's grown from sponsoring one mm. guy mm. quite a lot, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have delivery partners, but basically I think there are 18 people who are salaried through our delivery partners. Um, and yeah, yeah, all those numbers. Yeah, like incredible. Mm. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, amazing. And, but what is the base of it is the Christian faith and the, f the faith of um, Bishop Joseph and Bishop Emmanuel, who we work with, are utterly reliable. Trust me completely. I've been out there 16, 17 times. We, we email, we speak, FaceTime. Um, there's, there's a really open, good relationship that's been built up over a long period of time. Mm. 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 Wow, amazing. Absolutely incredible. I mean, if you're listening to this, um, I hope you are encouraged by what you are hearing here, how God can take one person and then uh, move them to a place where mentally and in your heart you say, it's almost as if you would have been disobedient had you not followed that call on your life, um, you know, had you not gone through with this. Uh, quite incredible, really. Now, you've had some struggles and challenges in your life. Um, 
I know that in your, in your 30s, you, you suffered with depression and uh, you lost a baby daughter, uh, Sophie, to cot death when mm -hmm. she was just 10, 10 weeks old, just over 10 weeks old. And I know more recently there have been other major challenges that mm -hmm. you have had. Mm -hmm. So my question is, um, how do you cope with these things as, as a follower of Jesus? Uh, how do you keep on going? And where is God in the midst of these really difficult and trying circumstances? Thank you, Nigel. Um, I think one of the things we find really hard in the West is to accept that the cross is part of the Christian life as well as the resurrection. And we, because we live in a culture where we can have everything we want um, and we can make so many things happen, we think we can live in an easygoing way of life and with resurrection all the time. But actually, that isn't what has happened to me and there have been a lot of challenges when I was younger and currently recently for me. And first thing I needed to do was actually accept that suffering is part of part of God's plan and there is no growth in us as people as Christians unless we have some challenges and pain um, I'm you know I don't want to get into the theology of God causing pain but it, it, it is used as, as a way of of growing mm. um, and the glory of God is shown through the cross mm. and some of the challenges that I faced have really put me back into where is God in it? Um, do I trust him? How am I going to find him when it's difficult to even stand up some days? Uh, how, am I, how am I going to do this? And I had to um, perhaps dig around in a different ways from how I was brought up. Uh, I'd been, uh, you know, evangelical Christian, uh, sermons, learning verses. The Bible was really, really important to me. But I needed to really experience God within me. And this um, last few years, I've discovered silence and sitting in silence and just the silence of being before God. And somehow in that silence is a presence and his spirit has communed with my spirit and has um, healed and restored me. It, it doesn't mean it's taken away things, but it's just given me the peace and the strength and the healing that I've needed to um, carry on. Mm. So that, I've also, um, I even brought it in here, a book mm. that I take to Africa, we use with the Africans, The Rhythm of Life, Celtic Daily Prayer by David Adam. Um, it has a lot of um, liturgy for each day, and I found having liturgy, um, as well as some silence, has been two different ways of really experiencing God and his, his presence and upholding me um, in, in those seasons. Yeah, and I sometimes say this to folks when, when we talk about this whole area of suffering, you know, we're followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And as you just said, what did Jesus go through? Mm -hmm. You know, almost from his birth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, um, you look at the different types of suffering that he went through and ultimately the cross. And if we're followers of him, then he is not unaware of pain or suffering that we may be going through. He can, mm, mm. he can, um, he knows, he understands. Yes, yes. And, uh, and I think knowing too that verse in Romans that, you know, in all things God works for good, but that mm. in any suffering he can use. Mm. And if we look at the Old Testament, 
virtually, well, every single Old Testament leader, and Jesus himself, of course, suffered hugely difficult things. Um, And God didn't take those away from them. But they managed to keep going and to find God and Mm. to work with him through it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would like, you've mentioned the word of God and and, Mm. um, the importance of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why is the Bible important to you? Um, the Bible's important to me because I, I think it's, it's like the rock, it's like God's word, it's like it's there, it's solid, it's, it's, it's you know, hard copy, it, it's there, <laughs> it's there, and it's real, and then there's so much teaching on it, it's, it's, it's just, it's everything really that we need. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the foundations. Mm. Foundation. Now you talked about Africa, and mm. obviously this is the Precept Ministries podcast, mm. Um, mm. I understand you saw a little bit about the work of, of Precept in Africa. Yes, so I did. So what, what did you see out there? Um, well, I was really surprised. I didn't know Precept had visited the bishop that I worked with, but he told me afterwards they had. And Precept had been to meet Bishop Joseph. They've done a wonderful film of him, which you, you've shown me here, mm. which is wonderful and shows what an amazing person Bishop Joseph Abba is. Mm. Um, and I think that was through Andrew Robertson, that connection, so I'm very grateful to that. And they also taught um, Bishop Joseph's pastors the precept method of study. Mm. And when I went out with Fiona Shelton in September, they said how helpful they'd found that. Mm. Really helpful to have the, some actual materials that mm. they could work with, because they've got nothing, yeah. nothing. Quite a lot, some of them might not even own a Bible. Mm. Um, so to have some material like that, and Bishop Joseph had found it very helpful, and Fiona had left him a book as well. But they'd also set up some Bible studies, and in the camp they've set up 80, 80 Bible studies. So just imagine, if you went to Southampton, and you were just going to meet a bishop there, and you were going to do a mission, and then he said, let's set some Bible studies up. Yeah. Do you think you'd set 80 yeah, up in Southampton? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is incredible. It is incredible. Yeah. And I mean, let's say that each of those Bible studies have got 10. I'm sure yeah. they have 10 or 20. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's 800 or yeah. 1,600 yes. straight off yeah. Yeah. studying the Bible. Absolutely amazing. Um, and you mentioned that film, wonderful film mm. put together. Um, and Stuart Kemsley is the director mm. in Africa and works with your, your friend mm. uh, there. And um, one of the studies that they've recently done is one on forgiveness. Mm. And some, just some amazing testimonies yeah. of the power of forgiveness yes. to be able Absolutely. to move forward in your Absolutely. life um, once you accept the need to forgive. Mm. And some Absolutely. of the things that have happened to the families are horrific. Yes. Absolutely horrific. Yes. You know, in our Western culture here and in the UK, we just wouldn't believe it. Yes. Um, so very powerful, very powerful. And of course, that's what Jan Ransom does with Flame. Forgiveness teaching is absolutely core yeah. of any teaching they do. And really, for these people to <clears> move on, unless they have had that teaching on forgiveness through precepts or through Jan, and then some emotional support with Fiona, it's very difficult for them to move on otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, do you have a favourite Bible book of the 66 books or a favourite Bible character? Um, my favourite Bible character is Joseph. It happens by chance. It's <laughs> Bishop Joseph, I support. Why, why Joseph? Well, I love that <clears throat> verse, um, what man intended for harm, God intended for good. And just Joseph spent 14 years in prison. His brothers treated him really badly. But from that emerged a man who was then able to 
forgive his brothers and God had prepared him to lead a whole nation mm. and save thousands and thousands of people. Mm. But look what he had to go through, you know, be put in a pit and rejected by his brothers and uh, slave traders picked him up. And accused then in prison, of rape. Accused you know. of rape, exactly. Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, had a really hard falsely time. Falsely accused of rape. Yes, yeah. falsely accused. A really hard time. But mm. he worked with God and let God mould his character until he could be supernatural. He chose that option to forgive his brothers and... God could, he was then ready to be used by God. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so that's my favourite character. Oh, fantastic. There are so many, aren't Well, of course, it's there? Jesus, but... Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting, Bible isn't it? We can, we can relate to different, maybe mm. some of what we're going through. We can think, mm. you know what? I can see what he's gone through, and actually he's, you know... It's, yeah. it's, what, it's great to be able to speak to you and others um, and see which of the characters in the Bible they relate to most. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. Mm. Um, so, so what's on the horizon for you? What's next for you in the, I don't know, weeks, months ahead? Uh, what's next for me, weeks, months ahead? Um, we have um, a meeting actually tomorrow night to look at Cress going forwards um, the next five years. Um, this sounds a bit secular. I've just read Steve Jobs' book, <laughs> the biography of Steve Jobs. And why he was successful was he was always thinking of the next thing, the next stage. And, and I do, my mind is a, bit, a little bit like that. Yes. Bishop Joseph's is a little bit like that. Yeah. But you, you have to be anticipating, if we're going to grow, if this is going to happen, what are we going to need ahead of, ahead of time? So we have that tomorrow. We're doing the Lent Project in the Chalk Valley where we hope to raise funds to vaccinate 500 people against hepatitis B and typhoid. Um, that's, that's a project we'll be doing. Mm. Um, and I'm looking for admin help, so those are the sort of things on my horizon. <laughs> oh, well, mm. I have to say it's been it's been a joy to talk with you, um, to hear something of your journey, you mm. know, and to hear how God has called you and led you, mm -hmm. uh, equipped you, gifted mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. to do what you're doing. Um, clearly, a dynamic leader um, to be able to galvanise others to come alongside you and uh, to continue the work you're doing in Africa. Quite amazing. So thank you so much for being on the programme. Uh, may the Lord bless you in the weeks, months, years ahead. And uh, you know, may what you do grow and grow and expand uh, to the blessing of lots of people. So thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Nigel. You didn't ask me my favourite verse. <laughs> so we do not lose heart because at the proper time we reap a harvest if we do not give up. That's my favourite verse. Say that again because we're still on. So we do not lose heart mm. because at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You need that sort of grit and determination when you're, when you're pioneering something because you can have a lot of setbacks. Mm. And that's from Galatians 6.9. Okay, Galatians 6.9. Mm. All right, thank okay. you so much. <laughs> You've been listening to the Bible and Me podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. If you want to find out more about Precept Ministries UK, visit www.precept.org.uk. Thank you.